Okay, today is April the 15th, 2010. And I was going to remind you about something, but I don't remember what it was. What was it? Oh, no, I think uh, you'll remember that Ty is going to be teaching this Sunday, and I'm going to be teaching the young people. I'm not sure whether it'll be in my office or back in the wing, depending on how many of them show up. So, uh, and Mr. Vidal is going to be teaching next Thursday. And I know he doesn't like me to say that. <laughs> I can see him wince when I say it, but that's okay. We're looking forward to it. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound, confessing our sins privately to God. Uh, and make sure we have all the bases covered, no sins lurking about. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's because of your mercies that we are not consumed and your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. We can say that every single day because of who and what you are. We're so thankful that our time on this earth does not depend upon us, nor does the power that we need in order to be overcomers. You've given it all to us free of charge. We pray that you will help us to recharge our spiritual batteries be prepared to do spiritual battle yet another day. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I got an email that uh, from Pastor Chuck Baldwin. I think he's down there in Florida. And it was somewhat disconcerting. I thought I'd give you a little bit of this uh, information. He says that... Um, by the way, at the end of this, I'll give you the email address, I mean the website address. It goes right a link to where this whole article is. The article would probably be about six pages. This is about a page. He says, uh, there was a report, and the header reads, Strategic Implications of American Millennialism, a monograph by Major Brian L. Stuckert, U.S. Army. And then he reminds us, he says, this is not a Christian university report or even a secular university religion, religion department report, but rather a report written by an active duty army major, I think he's uh, serving in Afghanistan, for one of America's war colleges. And he says, we Christians need to recognize that as far as the Stuckerts of this world, that was Major Stuckert that wrote this, as far as the Stuckers of this world are concerned, uh, we who believe in the Bible and we who believe in the regular return, the excuse me, the literal return of Christ, are considered the enemy. He says there is a growing sense among governmental and military leaders in America that Bible-believing Christians are an enemy that must be marginalized, warned about watched and even controlled. It does not matter to a tinker's dam to these Machiavellians whether one is a post-millennialist or a pre-millennialist. If we believe the Bible and believe that Jesus is coming again, they consider us dangerous. And we Christians better wake up to this stark reality, stop fighting each other, and focus on working together to preserve our liberties. Here are a few excerpts from his report. And this is a quote. Millennialism has great explanatory value, significant policy implications, and creates potential vulnerabilities in ad that adversaries may exploit. Then he says, all this is quoting, these factors, that is the results of millennial belief, can be problematic for any military leader or planner attempting to achieve U.S. government policy objectives 
through strategy, operations, and programs. And then uh, Chuck Baldwin inserts this. Notice that from the very outset of this report, Stuckert asserts that Christians who believe in the second coming create circumstances or conditions that might be problematic for American military leaders. We Christians also create potential vulnerabilities that American enemies may exploit, according to Stuckert. Furthermore, Stuckert laments that we Christians may even interfere with the U.S. government policy objectives. Now, this is another quote. The impact of American millennial religious ideas on U.S. government policy will add to strategic hubris, compel increasingly reckless international action, and continue to overcommit the military in ways the nation cannot afford. Did you hear that word hubris in there? Remember we just had that just uh, recently? A Greek word is where we get that from. Again, notice that Christians who believe in Christ's return add to pride, recklessness, and war. Good grief. I suppose that we Christians are also responsible for the escalating price of gas and oil too and maybe even global warming. That was Chuck Dawson's comment. <laughs> and then this is the last uh, quote here. First millennial thought and its policy implications may create strategic transparency that affords adversaries an advantage in decision-making. Second, an un understanding of American millennial thinking may provide adversaries with the means to manipulate American policy and subsequent action. And third, the enemy may exploit American millennialism to increase the fragility of and even disrupt coalitions. Fourth, adversaries may exploit American millennialism to demoralize or terrorize joint forces and the American people. By recognizing these potential vulnerabilities, military leaders and planners may take action now to mitigate the effects. I don't know what that note means, that they may take action now, but certainly it's going to be against those who are millennialists. What are we? We are millennialists. You see, they don't care whether you are pre, post, or even all millennial, if you believe that Jesus Christ is going to return and set up a kingdom on this earth, uh, they see it as a problem. And this last part I said, this is the report. By recognizing these potential vulnerabilities, military leaders and planners may take action now to mitigate the effects. That's kind of chilly, isn't it? That's a bit scary, isn't it? This is by an active duty major in our military had that report. And I'm all together on, on the, the same wavelength as he is. We need to quit our infighting and recognize that uh, the real enemy uh, is the unseen one, isn't it? It's the unseen enemy that is behind the scenes that is promoting all the evil in this world. And we don't have to fret and wring our hands over this because we know who's going to win in the end. And that's the one we're waiting for, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a matter of time. And I can't wait because when He comes back, He is going to sort this whole mess out. And there's not going to be any negotiation either. It's going to be His way or the highway, the highway to hell. And there's a lot on it. That's, not in the, that's just something I'm saying. That's, if you're listening to the to this, that was not on the report. Okay, let's get back to our knitting here in First Timothy. Oh, excuse me, First Thessalonians. I'm looking at a verse here in First Timothy. We'll just pick this up. This last part here. I'm not going to read all this. If you weren't here. I'll just summarize it this way. If you were not here Tuesday night, it had something to say about the support of pastor teachers. And the gist of it 
is that no pastor teacher, no one that has a communication gift should be doing their job in order to get paid to make to, 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 for gain. If you're in it for profit, you're in it for the wrong motivation. I mean, we all need to have our bills paid. We need to take care of business. But if you're in it to make a killing, then you're in the wrong place. And there are a lot of them out there that are. Just go to the Nut Channel and you'll see many, many multimillionaires that have... have you know what they've received? you remember what they received? Filthy lucre. <laughs> I love... Well, I can't remember the guy that did that, but when he was used to... He used to teach... I can't go back. I don't have it on here. Uh, the verses that have that, but... It's uh, dishonorable gain. It's uh, someone who is in it for the money, and they are manipulating their flocks. They're manipulating the people in order uh, to get rich. They're sharing the sheep, uh, making them naked and so forth. Anyhow, uh, that's what we were talking about. That's what the Scriptures were about. And we went to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. That's what's on the board here. And if you can look up here, you can follow with me. It says, let the elders, the Greek word for elders is presbyteroi, and that is the name for pastor teachers. It really means the old man, the one in charge. And there was one, more than one. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so let the uh, presbyteroi, pastor teachers who rule well, be considered worthy. And this is a present passive imperative. I'll explain that in just a minute. Be considered worthy of double honor. That's diplos time. Now, that present passive imperative means that, and by the way, the whole context of this has to do with a remuneration. It has to do with the financial issues. And essentially, the present passive Imperative means that the flocks, the congregation, could, should consider a pastor who's ruling well, doing his job well, uh, of double honor. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have to pay a pastor a certain amount because some congregations can't do that. Some churches are in affluent areas and they have more money they can shake a stick at. And then there's others who are in more rural, more uh, less financially uh, blessed areas, and they might not be able to do that. But this command is that they are to consider them worthy, where they're able to uh, show that in support or not, at least they are to be considered worthy. Passive voice means the, uh, the pastors, these presbyteroi, were the ones who receive that and was imperative upon the congregation. Then it says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, for the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his hire. So you can see that this has to do with the support of pastor teachers. And I won't go through all this. We went through all this last time. Um, but it Suffice it to say, this, here's this in this this one paragraph, the top line here says it refers to giving the pastor teacher remuneration and respect, and clarifies this. Uh, verse 18 clarifies it about not muzzling the ox. First obligation of the church is to pay its pastor well, uh, so that he can be free to study and teach without uh, being encumbered with having to take care of uh, financial matters that would take him, his focus off of his ministry. And then the next part, we haven't got into this. This is plowing new ground now. It says, uh, we proclaim to you the gospel. Let's get the, well, I guess I'm going to have to, do you all have your Bibles open? Okay, I do not. So I've got to find First Thessalonians here. Okay, First Thessalonians, we're in chapter 2, verse 9. 
This is how verse 9 reads. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So they were working night and day. They had the right to be supported by the congregation, but there were, there were those who were asserting that they were in it just for the money. And to keep that from becoming an issue, uh, they didn't take money from the Thessalonians. And they were working both night and day. And as they were doing this, it says, We proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, the word proclaimed here is the Greek word keruso, K-E-R-R-U-S-O. It's the aorist active indicative. It means to proclaim or preach publicly. Paul and his companions were not only working when they uh, disseminated doctrine from behind the pulpit. The biblical research preparation and organization of their lessons and then traveling to places to, uh, to the place of assembly takes time, dedication, and hard work. So they were working manually with their hands as they were teaching the Word. So it wasn't like they were not to be bothered when they were working. We don't know what they were doing. It's possible that they were making tents because we know, I think it's Acts chapter 7, that says that Paul was had that skill as a tent maker. But while they were working, people would come into their periphery. They would come in maybe passerbys or whatever, they were continually giving the gospel. There might be people that came by, they knew where they were working, they might have had a question about doctrine, they would talk to them then. Even at night, probably at night when they were through working, they would still uh, go and teach at various places. So they were constantly working and giving the gospel at the same time. Manually working and giving the gospel at the same time. The closest thing I can call to being in that particular situation where you're working manually and yet you still have to impart information is when we had this log home model over here. We built it from the ground up. We had what we called a log raiser. And we would invite all customers that are potential customers to come and get a hands-on experience what it was like to build a log home. And so we were, uh, and wow, we had a crowd. Now, it's, there's enough stress and pressure when on a construction job, when you have skilled workers and everybody knows what their job is, and it's, even when it runs smoothly, there's pressure and there's stress. All you guys that's worked on building this church are full, fully aware of that. But when you have a, a building that's just beginning to start, we were laying the first logs on that model home, and you have people, some of them don't know which end of the hammer to hold, and they're standing around and asking you a zillion questions. And at the same time, you've got to show how easy it is to go up. <laughs> well, like this far over here. Well, what's that thing over there? Well, why do you do it like this? And, and you have people crowded around you constantly asking you these questions. At the same time, you're manually showing people, now you do this part. Now you get somebody over here. This is where this goes. You've got to lift this over here. We need a ladder over here. And it's constant like that. But it didn't even stop then. After we had the house dried in, it was, that means it's the shell of it was done. We were inside trying to do things. And I can remember one time, we have a big, tall, uh, vaulted ceiling in there, cathedral ceiling. And I was at the very top of it. There was a fan that was, uh, came down from the, uh, from the very peak. And I was on a tall ladder up there with nails in my mouth and wires, pliers, and I was working like this, and this guy literally shook my ladder. I didn't say he shook. I mean, what? What? I, that's one of these houses run anyway. I said, well, they don't run. They just sit there. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I felt like it. And I, he was a potential customer. You have to be nice to him. So I had to come all the way down off the ladder. I'll put my nails down, da-da-da-da-da. You know, I would give him a brochure, try to show him on his way and everything. Get Buckeye, top of the ladder, get the nails ready to go and ready, and whoop, there's somebody else is in the door. You crawl all the way back down and you talk to them. That's what it's like, what these guys were doing. Constantly trying to provide a living for themselves, and yet at the same time, no doubt, bombarded with questions. And then when the day was over, they probably went to someone's house 
and had about a four-hour Bible class. So these guys were constantly... See, that's what we see here when it says, we proclaim Caruso in a public manner. Caruso means, is usually translated to preach. To you, the gospel. And uh, that gives you kind of an idea what they were doing. Now... It's kind of hard to come in on the very end of that. That was the last phrase. We just ran out of time Tuesday night. But uh, if you weren't here, you can get the, the CD or on the Internet or whatever. We're going to press on now with verse 10. In verse 10, 11, and 12 is one sentence. In the Greek it is anyway. Can you all hear me when I chew eyes? God trying not to do it. I like to do it though. Okay, First Thessalonians two ten. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved towards you believers. Now I don't know if you notice this, but notice that you have three words there devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. You notice something about all three of those words? They all end in L-Y, don't they? That means they're all adverbs. And I'll show you why that's significant in a minute. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring. See anything about those words? All three of them end in I-N-G. That means all three of them are participles. This is a syntactical parallel there. Anyhow... um, Imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we're going to take this a piece at a time, starting with you are witnesses, and so is God. Both the Thessalonians and God were witnesses to the truthfulness of Paul's claims. That's what he's doing. That's why he says so many times, you know this. I have told you this. You know, you know, you know this. He says that, what was it, seven times in, in the uh, two letters? I think it's four times in First Thessalonians, at least. So he is supporting his claims that he's not what others were claiming that he was, which was he was in it for the money, uh, he was a loser, he was a false teacher, and so forth. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were like the spiritual father of the Thessalonians, much like fathers should be good examples to their children. And the Thessalonians, as well as God, were fully aware of it. We're going to, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to expand on that a little bit more. Uh, I'll make a comparison in verse 7. What does it say in verse 7? Look at verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as nursing, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So in that verse you have a matriarchal illustration. And now, in this, in, by the time we get to verse uh, 12, uh, verse 11 rather, there's going to be a patriarchal illustration. So if you have, a, have new believers, if you have a new convert, you have to be what? Both mother and father to them. That's kind of the idea here. So it says, you are witnesses and so is God. Next phrase here, how devoutly. And here you have hathios, uh, which is an adverb. It means holy, sacredly, or loyalty. But the idea is that they kept on separating human viewpoint out, of, out from their own minds in order to consistently use divine viewpoint. See, one of the, or at least two of the words there, you can see holy and sacredly. Everybody knows what holy means? Anybody knows what, uh, you know, hagios is where we get the word saint. It means set apart for blessing. So this... Uh, De, uh, devoutly, and notice that's the L-Y, so it's an adverb, uh, has that connotation, and it means that they would separate in their own minds any human viewpoint and what they were expressing 
to everybody that came in contact with them, whether they were at work and was cutting out a piece of cloth in order to make a, a tent, or whether they were in the Bible class or whatever it was, they were separating the human viewpoint, the thinking thinking, from the divine viewpoint. You know why? No matter what you're doing, if you're at work, you've got to concentrate on what you're doing, don't you? Can you imagine they have this nice big, I don't know if they were using skins or cloth or whatever it was, but they had a pattern and you'd have to concentrate. I mean, if you cut it wrong, you could ruin the whole thing. And the whole time someone was pulling on your pants like, uh, I didn't understand point number four last night. Can you explain that? While they're trying to concentrate. And even no matter what the pressures were, they kept their relaxed mental attitude and kept thinking divine viewpoint. And here's a second adverb we were talking about. And uprightly comes from the chaos. It's an adverb that means justly, proper, or rightly. Can anybody think of a word that is a cognate of dikaios? See, this means uh, can mean uh, justly or rightly. You ever heard of dikaiosune? That means righteousness. See, this is a cognate of uh, dikaios. It just means doing things right and just. And now we have the third adverb here, uh, translated blamelessly. And the Greek word here is um, amemtos, A-M-E-M-T-O-S. A dikaios, by the way, is a D-I-K-A-I-O-S. But we're now looking at blamelessly, amemtos. It's a bad verb also. It can mean blamelessly, faultlessly. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and no one could rightly accuse them of wrongdoing. You see, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are blameless, because it's the Holy Spirit that is producing whatever you're doing. He, you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. He gives you the power. He gives you the guidance, all, all that. And no one can legitimately say that you're out of line or accuse you of some sin when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So they were blameless in that sense. doesn't mean that they were sinless, that they never sinned. But while they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were blameless. So there you have the three... Adverbs, devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. And then he says, we have behaved towards you believers. They set the example, and their main concern was to encourage the Thessalonian believers to live a way of life that was fitting of ambassadors for Christ. You know that's what you are, don't you? As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a high honor. Did you earn it? Anybody earn that? No, we didn't earn it. It's just another grace provision by God. What an honor that here we are on this planet and we are in the midst of the devil's world. If you look on our bulletin on the front cover, it says we're in enemy territory in which we are. And yet we are ambassadors of the Most High. Do ambassadors have to support themselves? No. We get logistical grace. I don't get that wrong. Don't go home and sit on a porch and wait for your divine check to arrive. But it means we are dependent upon the one that sent us, and the one who sent us is the one we represent, which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So now we have the three participles. Not all the time, but most participles end in I-N-G. That's a verbal. It's kind of a hybrid type thing. It has nuances of a noun. It has the case of a noun. And then it also has the uh, tense and voice of a verb. So the first one we have here is just as you know, we were exhorting. And we have this word, parakaleo. How many times have we had that? A lot of times, haven't we? And it's a present active. In fact, every one of these participles are present active participles, which means that it's to be considered ongoing action. You don't just exhort one time and you're done. It's ongoing. And guess who produces the action? We do. 
We're the one doing the exhorting. It means to call one uh, to one side to aid, help, encourage. A father may help his children by speaking to them kindly or by censuring them. In both cases, he is giving them what they need. And this requires discernment, knowing when to be gentle and when to be firm. The more days, weeks, months, and years that the Lord gives me, the more I see the importance of discernment. It is critical. And you know, you cannot have a discerning soul if you don't have wisdom. And where does wisdom come from? Can you go to a a university and gain wisdom? You can gain knowledge. You may... uh, be considered an intellectual. But wisdom is not the same as intellect. Wisdom is doctrine, essentially. And you can go into Proverbs uh, chapter uh, 4 and 5 and 6, and wisdom is personified. I even like the word in the Greek, Sophia. Sophia Lauren. I wonder if she's wise. Well... Anyhow, uh, it's really important to get this. Let me give you an example. There is a time for parents to be very gentle, nurturing, and sensitive to their children. And there are other times that you should be totally inflexible, as firm, as hard as nails, if necessary. And the, the real, where the wisdom kicks in is recognizing when to be firm and when to be flexible. And you can't go to a, to a uh, even in the Bible, and say, okay, I've got this situation. What page is it on? It doesn't come that way. It comes from your intake, ongoing intake of Bible doctrine, which makes you wise and gives you discernment. Here's an example for you. You remember, everybody knows the, the illustration of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son was a real jerk. And he left his father, went and got his inheritance and squandered his inheritance. And the next thing you know, he's down there with the pigs and the pigs are eating better than he is. And he just really blew it. And so he said, you know, I'm gonna, the servants at my father's house are treated much better than I am. And they eat a lot better than I do. I'm going to go back home and beg of my father to see if he will put me on as a servant. And you know the story. He was going back to his father's house, and his father saw him at a distance. And you can see him. He's probably had his speech all prepared. And before he could say anything, his father ran up to him and threw his arms around him and started rejoicing because uh, his son that was lost now is back home. It's a very uh, endearing uh, scene that you can see. But why didn't? The father, when he saw his son, get his leather strap. Why didn't the father, when he came back, say, "Uh Uh-huh, I told you so. I guess you got what you deserved, didn't you? Why didn't he do that? Because the father had wisdom. He knew when to be gentle and when to be uh, very sensitive and kind and when to be hard as nails. Now, here's a principle that you can't miss here. It's really important. The reason that he was sensitive and gentle to his son because his son had already learned the lesson. His son didn't come back with an arrogant attitude. His son didn't come back making any demands. He had already learned his lesson. What he needed then was love, sensitivity, and encouragement. That's exactly what his father gave him. If he gave him anything else, it would have been a disaster. So that's what we see here when we're talking about a father. To call parakalao is like calling someone over to your side. I can remember I, I played sports for as long as I could remember when I was a younger person. And there would be somebody that was struggling. Somebody, uh, usually this was out on the football field. And there might be a, a young guy that normally is upbeat and always tries his best, and all of a sudden, he's mad. He's, he's, uh, he's trying to pick fights with other people, 
and he's uh, not trying his best. He's kind of uh, just halfway trying to, to do what he's supposed to do. And I've seen this happen more than once. The church would say, let's say the guy's name is Johnny. Say, Johnny, come here. Johnny, you know, he's, he's angry enough. And the boy would come over there next to him. He'd put his arm around him. Say, What's the matter? Well, they said so-and-so, so-and-so. He said, no, I'm not talking about what they said. I'm talking about what is it that's bothering you. I'm not talking about what's going on over there. I'm talking about what's eating you on the inside. And the boy, sometimes I've seen him even break down and cry. And that was a time to be gentle, you see, prior to let and he was explained to him, and he would just literally they would walk together. The coach and the guy well sometimes was like this. Some of the guys were bigger than the coach, and they would walk around the field like that. And he'd give him a pep talk. And the next thing you know, he's over there. And he's right back on, in, right back in line. And then I also seen sometimes where there would be something going on over there, and the coach would call somebody over there, call them over to the side, and chew them out. And the next thing I knew, they were duck walking around the whole track. In both cases, the coach was imparting information that they needed. He was helping in both cases. But he had the wisdom and the discernment to know when to do what. And that's what fathers are called on every single day to do. Mothers too, but we're focusing on fathers in this verse. Great word, huh? Parkaleo. So that is the first participle. The next participle is encouraging. And this is uh, the Greek word paramutheomai. P-A-R-A-M-U-T-H-E-O-M-A-I. And that's a mouthful. It's a participle also, and again, a present active participle. Keep on doing this. It means to speak soothingly, kindly, in order to comfort or console. This word is used only four times in the New Testament, and it appears twice in this epistle. So it's used four times. The other two times, by the way, it's used in uh, John, the Gospel of John. So it's not used that many times, but it's used twice here. And so just, just remember this. When, when someone has been beat down in life, whatever it may be, they're usually already humble because life has humbled them. And if they're already humble, why do you want to jump on somebody that's already... Why do you want to kick somebody that's already down? What they need then is this paramutheomai. They need encouraging. They need to hear that somebody cares. They need to hear that somebody's there to help them. Whatever it may be, encourage them. And the best thing you can do when you're encouraging someone is encourage them with the what? The Word of God. It comes from the highest source. And we've got the good news. The good news just isn't in the Gospel. The good news is that God cares about you even after you're saved, even if you act like a stinker, even if you have blown it, you're stubborn and you're arrogant, and finally you've been body slammed and the wind's knocked out of you. God is always there, ready to pick you up, put you back on your feet, and start you on your way and help you and support you. That's good news, isn't it? We have abundant number of promises that we can share with these people. So that is that uh, encouraging aspect. Then we have one more participle, and it's and imploring each one of you. Now, that's from the New American Standard the way that it was uh, translated. And we have the Greek word marturomai, M-A-R-T-U-R-O-M-A-I. And guess what? It's a participle, present, active. Every one of these you're to keep on doing. You have to do it. And this word means to exhort solemnly, implore, charge, insist, urge, beseech. What do you hear in every one of those words? Sense of urgency, right? It's one thing to ask somebody something, but if you implore them, you are 
really serious about it. I am, if you implore, you, it, it nearly uh, it, it just has a real search of a sense of urgency. New believers should be taught in how to give the gospel to others. You see, this marturomai comes from uh, the word uh, for disciples, which uh, we get the uh, discipling or witnessing. Actually, it means uh, d- disciple, disciples witness. And it, the, this is where we get the uh, English word martyr. It's from marturion, martyr. If you look at the Greek words that have to do with uh, discipling and witnessing and all these, uh, it's where we get our word, uh, English word martyr from. In other words, a lot of people who were witnessing and discipling were what? Martyred. Right? And so it's imploring each one of you, and it has kind of a, a sense that goes along with it of witnessing. So if you have a new believer... If you have a new convert, a baby believer, someone that is just beginning to learn what it's all about, what you want to do is teach them fundamental doctrines first. Don't get a, even if they are asking you, well, who do you think the Antichrist is? Well, that's not really what you need to know right now. What you need to know is how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, need to know uh, what the only requirement for salvation is, and that's faith alone in Christ alone, and you have to be able to defend that because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to uh, sway you away from that thinking that there's works involved some way. So you start with the fundamental doctrines. Remember when, we, when I started the fundamental series way back, I don't know when it was, it's quite a while now, but we had the barrier, remember, the brick wall, and how God took care of every one of those uh, bricks, those barriers. They need to understand what that's about. They need to know uh, that they can be assured that when they die, they're going to be with Jesus Christ because Christ conquered death. They need to know that we serve a living God, one that has a resurrection body already. Remember the point that I made each such a neat point? Restored was made was all the material things, even up to Antichrist and the world coming, isn't there? We know from Second for the Earth. Just place and is now in a new earth. This in the new creation. I thought, okay, uh, basically others. You want them to be able to witness? They're going to be eager to do so. So I right, right from the new, the new like, about the but the people are, and that you know, people. No, it's not. They need to just get past it. Okay. Now we have the last phrase in verse 11. Or, if you know someone that may be in a person is about, they finally get it. They, too, need attention and training. Attention and training. That's what they need. So, who can, who can provide that? You see... The whole purpose of this local church is not just for you, this assembly, this group right here, and the others that are here on Sunday and come when they're not, I don't know, the whole CBC group. It's not just so that you will understand doctrine. That's part of it. But that's only part of it. The other part of it is for you to go out and train others. You see, that's when you really find out if you know it or not. You may think you know a doctrine. In fact, I may have repeated something. Oh, no, not that again. And you think you've got it dead. You've got it. And then you get before somebody and you start trying to explain it to them and you look like Elmer Fudd. Uh, You know, Elmer Fudd, he's slobbering all over himself. It's hard. That's why you have to get it over and over so you've got it so good and you know you have it when you articulate to other people. Now, you have to, you know what that takes? Discernment. I'm not saying go home, go to your neighbor. Uh, I just learned that I'm supposed to train you. Wake up. I want to give you some attention. (laughs) See, it takes discernment, even that. But that's our job. I'm not teaching just uh, believers. I'm teaching ambassadors to represent Jesus Christ. And that means you have to what? Speak to others. And there's a time to speak and there's a time to shut up. 
And that takes discernment. But every person that you come in contact with that even shows a little bit of interest in what you're doing, about your church, about the doctrine, about whatever the issue is that you're talking about, means that you have an opportunity to do this. You can maybe even become what this is talking about, a spiritual father to them. Because most people that you come in contact with don't have a clue. They don't know what it's about. When it comes to spiritual matters, they are blank. And when they start getting a little bit of information, and they start the, do- the, the door starts to open, to open, and they start seeing things, they say, wow! You don't turn around and leave and say, well, I'll see you. When they ask questions, that is exceedingly good. You know what I do when people don't ask me questions? Yeah, I ask them questions. And you can tell by their body language, their attitude, and everything else if they're into it or not. So as a father would their own children. So if you have someone that is new, you want to start with a basis, train them, and give them attention. Call them. Talk to them. It's what's wonderful. I remember uh, David Dunn. Anybody know David Dunn? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a pastor now. In fact, I was uh, taking a Greek course with him this, today. And um, he used to come to my house way before he was a pastor. And he used to just, it was just like two magpies. <clears throat> just like this the whole time. It was all about doctrine. And we'd look up and four hours were gone. See? That's when it's really great. There's nothing on this earth that you can talk about that's more important than the Word of God. And the invisible things, those are the things that, what, last for all eternity. I mean, everybody wants to know about, well, how's the Dallas Cowboys doing? Who, who won the hockey game or, you know, wherever else is on the boob tube? It's okay, you can talk about that, but you should really desire to talk about doctrine more than any other thing. And when a person shows a little interest, you need to start giving them attention and training them. Uh, Verse 12. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. I think all we have time for is just this first phrase to get started with it. So we have so that, which sets up a purpose clause. And you have that you may walk. And this walk, many of you have heard this word before, familiar with it, is peripateo. P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O. This is an infinitive. Present active. Infinitive, remember what I told you? How can you recognize infinitive? What's the word that comes before an infinitive? T-O, to. To walk, to eat, to run, to whatever it is. That's an infinitive. Uh, it's a present active. You notice all these are present actives? Keep on doing this. It's a compound word. Peri means about, and pateo means to walk. So it means to walk about. Isn't that what the Australians do? I'm going to do all walk about. It's used figuratively to refer to one's behavior, the way one conducts his life. This word is used 95 times in the English Standard Version of the New Testament. And it's also translated act, do, behave, practice, and lead the life. So when it says that you may walk, it means so that you may conduct your life in a such and such fashion. That's what it's talking about. And so, para. He's concerned about how they conduct their life, their behavior. You know, if we excuse other people as quickly as we excuse ourselves when we have bad behavior, there'd be a lot, le- a lot more love in this world. We are very quick to judge other people and very slow to judge ourselves. It's very easy for us to excuse our own bad behavior. And you know what the universal excuse is? But they deserve it. 
Is that how God tells us to treat other people? We are to treat them on the, on the basis of what? The character and the doctrine we have. Because God certainly does not treat us the way we deserve, does He? Aren't you glad? And He is our example. He teaches us to love. We love because He first loved us. And the first thing He teaches us is that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His love towards us, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the ultimate in forgiveness and grace and unconditional love. And that's the way we are to treat others. And so we are to walk in that fashion and be careful what our behavior is. Because people are watching us. And they're not easily... They're not, well, let me put it this way. They're not good forgivers. They'll hold a grudge. And they will talk about you behind your back. He says he's a Christian. And guess, guess what he did? Or guess what she did? Or guess what he said? We have to be careful the way we walk, the way our behavior is. Our behavior comes from what? What we think. If you have divine viewpoint, it's going to be full of grace. We're not going to get wear our feelings on our sleeves and get all in a toot every time someone doesn't say or do something the way we like it. We have to be careful the way we walk, our behavior in a manner worthy of God. Now, I'm going to stop here because I'm just about out of time. Next time I'm going to give you, I think it's six points, verses in fact, on how we are to walk. It means what is our behavior supposed to be like? We are held accountable by God for our behavior. He doesn't send us to hell because we're raising hell. But He can get the divine paddle out And you might think that you're in hell. What we want to do is try to mimico Him, mimic Him. He is our example. And when we do, we're learning the Word, we learn how to execute the Christian way of life, then we're walking in a way that is worthy of God, who called us to His kingdom and His glory. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the God of the universe has called you and me to His kingdom, to share His kingdom and to share His glory? What a God. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful for this time You've given us to fellowship in Your Word and to recognize that it truly is alive and powerful. It challenges us. It inspires us to be better fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, In every endeavor that we are in, at every point in time, You are there, parakaleo, calling us to Your side, encouraging and helping and directing us. We thank You for it and pray that we, in our lives, will reflect all that You are. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.